Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Today, I'm joined by fan favorite Ruben Gomez. And we talk about some things that Ruben has learned over the past year or so running SignWell. As I talk about in the episode, SignWell is an electronic signature app that's growing quickly. He's having a lot of success with it. But in this episode, we talk about product market fit and maybe some of the myths around it or the oversimplifications that we use when we talk about it. And I really like the way Ruben thinks about everything he talks about on a day-to-day basis, but especially things like product market fit. That kicks off the conversation. And I think you'll find it enlightening if you've never experienced it or if you've never thought about it in the way that Ruben talks about. Then we talk about doing sales as an introvert, because I get that question on the podcast a lot. Then we dig into decision-making. That was kind of an audible that that just kind of came up in the middle of the episode. But I I let this one run long because I really enjoyed that piece of it. And I think it's something that more founders can learn from. And it's not something that I've talked about much on the podcast in the past. And finally, we talk about hiring, getting good at it, why Ruben is so good at it, why he has a high hit rate and has built teams that get stuff done without a lot of drama. Do you want to reach tens of thousands of potential customers? Between our microconf events, startups for the rest of us, our YouTube channel, our email newsletter, and all the other ways we interact with our large and growing and loyal audience of startup founders. We have a lot of options for you to reach B2B SaaS founders with your product or service. Drop us an email at sponsors at microconf.com. And one more thing. We've recently reopened the doors for our online community, MicroConf Connect. MicroConf Connect is our virtual hallway track. It's a vibrant community of SaaS founders helping each other and discussing wins, challenges, and frankly, how to grow faster. A couple months ago, we paused new signups to improve the platform based on your requests. With MicroConf Connect 2.0, we're rolling out three membership tiers packed with new perks like weekly co-working, exclusive discounts, a searchable content library, and more. Whether you've been a member of Connect or not, you really should check it out, microconfconnect.com. And with that, let's dive into our conversation. Ruben Gomez, thanks so much for joining me again. Hey, thanks for the invite. Good to be back. Yeah, back by popular demand. I'm I'm really on a roll here. I had Asia Arangio on a few weeks ago, planning to have Derek Reimer on in a couple weeks. And Ruben Gomez, I believe the three of you tend to be the most requested guests on this show. So nice. glad you took time here in the new year to hang out with me. You know, last several times you've come on, we've answered listener questions. And obviously there's plenty in the, in the uh, mailbag, so to speak. But I really wanted to have you talk about some learnings that you've had over the past year or two and kind of catch people up. It's been a while since we've just riffed on things. You know, we've, you in the past, you and I've talked about product market fit, about rules of thumb, about funnel metrics, about sale, all kinds of stuff. And you and I chat fairly regularly, like once a month and half for years. And so I have some idea of, of what you've been going through. And I feel like your learnings and the way, not just your learnings, it's the way you communicate them is very unique in our space. And I, I sent a tweet out the other day, someone was saying, maybe you should have Ruben back on the show, or they were just saying Ruben is the goat. And I said, yeah, his doing to talking about it ratio is like 10 to one, right? It's like 10x what everyone else on the internet is. And so that's why I want to just take the whole episode today to talk through product market fit is one thing. And we're going to talk about how product market fit is not 
is not as simple as we all make it out to be, that almost every conversation around it, including a lot of stuff I say on the show, is it isn't abstraction. It's an oversimplification. And I want to take the first part to dig into that. And then I want to talk about, you know, you're a, a developer, an introverted developer for that matter, but you've done a lot of sales calls and you've closed big deals. And I want to hear how you've done that and how you've thought about it, as well as building your sales team. And you're one of the most gifted uh, bootstrap founders I know at building a team, at hiring in a very, I'm going to say picky, and I mean that as a compliment. You're a good judge of people and you, you have a high hit rate, a high rate of hiring people who work out. And when people don't work out, you let them go. And all those are unusual uh, skills, I will say, in the bootstrap space. So sound good? Yep. Sounds good. Let's dive in, man. So first point is going to be around product market fit. But I think the overarching topic really that you said is the whole goal of what you've been working on for the past year with product and, and positioning and all this stuff is increasing your average revenue per customer. And to catch people up, you run Signwell, signwell.com, which is an electronic signature platform. And you have both the web app side and the API side. And so I guess the first question is, okay, so you're trying to increase average revenue per customer. Why? Oh, good question. Because... Um... Generally speaking, customers that uh, pay more churn less. It's easier to grow. It's easier to grow faster uh, that way. You just need a lot less customers. And depending on the category, can be, it can actually be less competitive. You know, in our category, it tends to be less competitive because we deal with e-signatures and uh, e-sign laws. And once you start to go up market, there's more on the compliance and security side. So there are less companies. The bar is higher, uh, which means the competitive set, when, when companies are in that group where they need to work with a company that has sort of these things, is just smaller. So for all those reasons are sort of why we're focusing on, on customers with they're going to move that up for us. And to be clear, we're going to call the user-facing interface your web app, and then the API is you know people who listen to this know the difference between those two. So there's two two separate offerings, and your pricing is very different for them, right? So the web app, you have a free plan, you have a personal plan that's eight dollars a month if paid annually, and a business plan twenty four dollars a month if paid annually. So these are, these are relatively low price points versus on the API side. We're not talking about you raising prices five or $10 a month. We're talking about several hundred, if not thousands, literally thousands a month on the API side. Yes. Also, even on the web app side, on, the, on that side of things, we're just selling to larger teams. So even though the per user price is smaller, we're bringing in companies that are, you know, more and more companies that are in the 50, 70, 100, 200, you know, sort of user price point. Got it. And this is what I want to talk about because you said this right before we hit record. And it's something that I don't think is talked about at all about product market fit specifically. And you said, yeah, we found product market fit or strong product market fit, because you and I both know it's not a binary, it's a continuum. I like to think of it as a number of one to 100 or zero to 100 or whatever. And you mentioned that you know with the web app, we found product market fit a while ago with individuals, but we didn't have it with teams. With 50, 60, 70, 100 person teams, you, we just didn't have the features. So then you were looking for product market fit on the web app team side, the enterprise side. And then you moved over to the API, which does even bigger deals, and you realize, oh, it's not just there's not just one product market fit continuum. 
there's all these different use cases. And with each individual one, we have to then go find it. So we're going to talk through each of those kind of mental models or each of those phases. But to kick us off in true startups for the rest of us fashion, I want to ask you, when did you know on the web app side that you had product market fit? Yeah, for us, it became all the numbers just looked started to look different at some point. We our conversion numbers improved, our retention numbers, you know, churn was lower and growth. Ultimately, really what you're looking for and what you're looking at is growth and word of mouth to pick up in a way to where it feels like this is, you know, we've talked about this before, but like you're being pulled, right? And more it started for us to feel like we're having to keep up instead of having to grind and work and push, right? The feeling was was different from that side of things. And this is just like broadly talking about it. But it was, you know, generalizing, it was just for more for the segment to where it's self-serve, it's smaller, it's like one person or just a couple or two or three. And we served those really, really, really well. It was still not that great of a solution for company, for teams for even, you know, 10, 15, 20 person teams. And that was pretty rough. So not just that, but even on the smaller side there, this is the thing with the horizontal product. It's hard to, you're just serving so many different industries that if you look and you say, okay, what are our top 10 best customers? We want more of those. You start to break them down. One of the easier things to do with some products is that you could just put them on a spreadsheet by revenue, and then you start to see, okay, so these are all these are all uh, this industry or this vertical or whatever this customer segment. For a horizontal product, a lot of times it just looks like it's all over the place. It's like you might have like accounting firms here, and then something uh, education, um, nonprofits, and all sorts of different industries. So it can be hard to work with uh, if you're looking at it from that perspective. For, so then we really started focusing on use cases. And you'll find that, oh, education and HR internal corporate have this use case of like, they need to send one document to many people. They batch documents. Uh, so then you can group sort of industries that way. That's how we sort of look at the like our top customers by use case, even our, our bottom customers, like sort of performing an audit. What are the worst performing? Like which ones use it the most frequently, but also the least frequently? And uh, what percentage of the bottom of like the worst performing make up our revenue? So just to get a feel for like, are we adding features that are really meant for that bottom tier or are we moving in the right direction? Yeah, and what I want to call out here is the oversimplification that I was referring to that I think everyone's guilty of, and certainly me on this podcast is, well, I should say, the most common oversimplification is acting like product market fit is binary. I have it or I don't. And it's just, it's never been my experience. It's not not how it works, right? But let's say it's a continuum. The way that I like about how you described it is even with that, it's a different product market fit with individual customer segments. And that customer segment might be a vertical. It might be hair salons versus realtors versus bankers versus SaaS founders. But as you said, when you're a horizontal SaaS, there's oftentimes the verticals, it's not verticals, it's use cases. It, it's HR, at, as you said, HR 
teams at any company that's almost any company that's 100, 200, 300 people might have the same use case. It doesn't matter what vertical they're in because they all have the same need to hire people and send out things in bulk, right? And that's something I, I think is undercommunicated or just isn't talked about enough in our space. Yeah, I think use cases are a big deal. They matter for not just product market fit and figuring out what features to build, but also who to go after, how to do your on, like even your onboarding and what that first run experience is like. Because if you think about it, like we have use cases to where some industries just have more of a sales type use case to where it's simple documents, they just need signatures and that's it. And the time to value for those is really fast. So that means they can all, they also do sort of one-off sort of documents and maybe in high frequency or whatever. And that just looks very different from an onboarding perspective, from a sales perspective, from like the features that you're going to build point of view compared to ones where maybe they're, they're collecting a lot of data, maybe in you know, the government forms, HR stuff, right? So then if you think about the time to value, that's longer because they have to set up documents with all these fields, they have to set up templates, they have to maybe do a bunch of training and, and all this stuff. And that also tends to change, change how we reach them and how we sell to them. And then you mentioned on the API side, which is a much higher ticket sale, so to speak, just higher annual contract values, that even on that side, there are multiple use cases and you had to work on them in order, individual. I mean, talk about patience, right? This is where folks, either who have never started a SaaS, don't realize how long it takes and how patient you have to be. Or people who are working on a SaaS and are like, but I've been coding for months and we're just not going to get there. It's taking longer than I thought. And it always takes way, way longer than you thought because you think that you understand this full view. And usually once you get to the top of that, that little summit, which is I'll say product market fit with one use case, you realize, oh, there's like four others that I now have to build and it's different features and I each one is a few months. So I'm talking eight months of, you know, or whatever. I'm making up numbers, but that, that's usually how it feels. But the other thing you said was the further up market you move, the fewer prospects you have, the fewer customers you have, the, few, the less data you have to work with to make these hard decisions with incomplete information. So my question, because I get this a lot on the podcast, is how do you make those decisions? You know, it's not like... It's super clear cut, right? In retrospect, when you when when the biopic is made about you and Signwell, and uh, like in this, Aaron Sorkin's going to write it. In retrospect, it's going to be so clear that from day one you knew the exact vision and where you were headed. But yeah, looking back, it's always always super clear. It is. So, like, what is it? Like, how are you making? You're in the midst of this. How are you making those decisions these days? Yeah. So you are working with less data. The the typically the more you charge, that's just the game. So because of that. You have to go deeper with each of these customers and understand them at a, like you have the time and you don't have a lot of data by volume, but you can get a lot of data by uh, depth, right? Qualitative versus quantitative, right? Yeah, exactly, right. And you, you kind of do qualitative even with volume, but a little bit less and you're kind of just depending on the numbers being so high for you to understand the full picture, but you don't have that. So you have to really, you have to talk to, to customers and you have to sell and you have to do, you know, every, every time you're interacting with, uh, with a company, you have to try and gather data that will help you in, in this journey. And then afterwards, after you sell them, not be afraid to come back and 
be like, you know, I've, I've done this with on the API side and with teams, with companies that we don't have a lot of, but we know this is a good customer and we want more of. And it's just like we need to understand as much as possible about this customer, how they buy, what triggered the process of buying, who was involved, what were the conversations like behind the scenes, what are the things that are important to them, what were they worried about when getting started, like all this stuff, right? The more you know that way, the less people you need before you start to see patterns. It's still art, right? Like it's not going to be like perfectly clear or anything like that, but that helps That helps a lot. And so you take this qualitative data and at a certain point you just have to go with your gut? Yeah, so part of it is where you want to go with the company and what you see, right? Because you 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 just kind of have to think about like, okay, we like this type of company. How many more are there out there? And the thing that I think a lot of people, you know, miss is like, oh, what can we so everyone focuses on what they're what they can build. It's like how long is it going to take to add these features and can we add the will there be more companies that will will use these features? Like how big of a market is it? And the thing that they, I think a lot of companies overlook is that they don't think about how easily they can reach them, right? Like how good are they at selling to them? Like you can have a really big market. So for us, an example is real estate. And this was kind of early on. We saw, okay, this use case has more of a back and forth than some of the other use cases. So this back and forth is good for real estate and a couple other industries, but not many. That market is really big. There are e-sign companies that are just real estate. And invest look, looking into it, researching it, there were things that I found that I felt made it harder for us to reach them and sell to them. And it's not necessarily like just a general thing. These are hard to, you know, sometimes it's like that, like, oh, they, they don't like to talk to sales and they don't hang out online and all this stuff. But none of that matters if you have a way to reach them. Like, well, we have good relationships with, uh, you know, these organizations or a superpower for us and our company DNA is doing this, which is a really good way of reaching. We didn't have any of that. So because of that, plus we were lacking like just expertise and when it comes to, you know, how to sell the real estate and how all that works. It just, it didn't feel like a good, and we purposely ignored building those features and we still have a, a good amount of real estate customers, but there's there's a lot more that we can do to better serve that. And we don't have product market fit for that segment, those types of back and forth use cases. And you're just you're just willing to do it. Yeah, and we're okay. Like you have to decide, right? Like prioritizing is a huge part of it. There's only so much you can do. You have to pick and you have to decide what you're doing, but also what you're not going to do. That's the big, the big conversation. The, and I don't like it when people use Steve Jobs and Basecamp as examples, right? Apple and Basecamp. Mm. But there is a quote that I like from Steve Jobs where he, I believe he told it, it's like Tim Cook re-quoting Steve Jobs. And he said, one of the things he told me is there will always be a thousand good ideas and usually we have time to pursue one. And so for every hundred or thousand or whatever the number is, we have to say no. And we will be great by saying no to a lot of things. And that's that's prioritization. Maybe he's overstating it. Maybe he's exaggerating. You can do more than one thing. But the reality is, I mean, in the in the in the final days of Drip, when I was there, we're doing tens of millions a year in revenue. Team is 125 people or so. We were getting close to, two, I think it was about 175, 200 feature requests per month. 
how, how many can you be even with 18 engineers? Yeah, you're not, you're not going, to, going to do all that, right? No, you have to find a way to prioritize, yeah. Exactly. And some of it, and some people prioritize with a spreadsheet, and some people like Derek and I, and I think you, prioritize kind of where out of, I, I would say it's gut feel that acts like I'm just either smarter than I am or like I just don't give a shit and I'm just picking randomly with a, with a dartboard. It's neither of those. It is this kind of, there's an intuitive side. There's a right and a left brain, a creative and a science side, right? And the spreadsheet is science and that's helpful. And so when we hired a, the first product person aside from Derek and I, he was very much in that left brain spreadsheet mode and that balanced us out a bit. I will say it was helpful to have that voice on the product side, but that voice alone would not have made the right decisions. Yeah, like gut's a really big part of it. I always feel, felt like you had, you're really good at this and you're decisive and, and you tend to more often make the, from what I've seen, make the right decisions. Not always, but a lot of the time, more than a lot of other people. One thing that I've wondered about the way that you do it is, do you feel like you've de- you developed that or... Like, are there things that you've done or that you do that you think help improve gut, like that gut feel sort of? This is a really good question. I've thought a lot about it because one of the talks that I've given is like, I forget exactly the title, but I gave it in South Dakota a few months ago. And it's like nine traits of the best startup founders. And I couch it in the first five minutes of like, here's what I define as best. <laughs> I've invested 171 companies. I have pretty in-depth data around about 171 SaaS founders. And I, I can tell when the founders are having an outsized impact. It's not just you're successful, because sometimes you're successful and you got really lucky and it's not actually the founder, right? You and I have seen that. But given the relationship I have with the tiny C founders and my private investments, I have patterns, right? There's pattern matching that I kind of see across my there's a framework I have of it. And one of those things is they generally tend to make the right decision more often than not. And it's, as you said, it's not a hundred percent, but it's somewhere in the 60 to 80% range. I think even if it's, you can be as low as 50 and still, still probably not that bad. This is Rob popping in a day or two after Ruben and I recorded this episode. And I thought back to that statement that I just said about how if you're making 50% of your decisions correct or right or mostly right, that you're doing well. And I disagree with that. That number is too low. I mean, that's basically like flipping a coin, right? As I thought more about it, I think if you're above, you're like above two thirds, maybe 70%, 75%, like you're doing pretty good. And I think the better you get at this, I think really experienced founders who know what they're doing are probably in the 80 plus, 85, 90 plus, you know, like it's like eight or nine out of 10 are at least in the ballpark. And as Ruben and I talk about, like measuring right or wrong can often be hard. It's usually not just two choices. There's creative choices. And oftentimes there's six, seven, eight different paths and you don't know how they all would have panned out. And multiple options can be quote unquote right or turn out poorly or whatever. So it is all a bit hand wavy and fuzzy, but I just didn't want to leave it on record that I said, oh, if you're a founder making 50% or more of your choices that you, you know you know how to make good decisions because I don't believe that's the case. And now let's get back to the episode. I often list several founders off the top of my head who I think are really gifted founders and are really good at it and could do it over and over. And it's Heaton Shaw, it's Jason Cohen, it's, you know, there's Steli FC. There's a bunch of folks who've been microconf speakers. They just tend to make the right decisions. And so I've thought a lot about, well, how do you get better at that? Because it feels like this very intuitive thing, but I used to not be good at it. And I used to second guess myself a lot. And I think the ways I got better at it were by like talking to people, either having advisors or having mastermind 
you know, compadres like yourself who think about things differently than I do and who make decisions differently. I used to make impulsive decisions quickly. You think a lot more in depth about decisions. And that kind of steered me into balancing. What's my weakness? I know myself to know, oh, a weakness is I'm uncertain. I'm not decisive. I think about things too much. And then eventually I just, I'm just going to make an impulsive decision. Like that's how I used to do it, say 15 years ago or more. And you balanced me out being just watching Heaton Shaw execute. You know, he was an early influence on me because he was a microconf speaker and he was ahead of us, right? In terms of crazy egg and just with, with Kissmetrics, watching Jason Cohen execute. So some of it I could do from afar because like Jason Cohen and I, have, you know, we've done Zoom calls over the years, but it's not like we talk every month, but you just observe him and you hear it, you read his blogs, you hear him talk about his decision making. And it's like, I want to be more like that. He seems to make some good decisions, right? And being some pretty good decisions. Yeah. Yep. And being around you on a more ongoing basis, you know, again, we have that monthly touch point for more than a decade. That also helped. And then here's what the interesting thing, even with Tiny Seed Founders today, watching founders, there are a lot of founders that I work with that I'm like, wow, you make really good decisions and I'm still learning from them. They might, you know, they might be better at me than making decisions. And so I pick up on little things. I'll say, explain to me why you made that decision. And when I hear him talk it through, I'm like, ooh, that's smart. That's like a neat framework or a neat way of thinking about it. So that's the answer. The answer is I do believe you can develop this because I certainly didn't have it. And I would agree with you these days, I do have it. And that's not overconfidence. It's like I generally make the right decisions. So I definitely think you can learn it, but I do not believe you can learn it in a vacuum. I think you need to be listening to the right people. And by listening to, I mean, do they have a podcast? Or can you read Jason Cohen's blog? Can you read my book, The SAS Playbook? Hopefully I help you make some decisions. You know, I have a thing in there about risk versus certainty and decision making. It's like, are they putting stuff on the internet in a way that you can follow them? Or do you know them personally? Like I know you, Anarvol set's actually really good at making decisions. And I've learned from him even in the past five years of working together. So does that all make sense? And is that aligned with your, because I feel like you've always been pretty good at making these types of decisions, to be honest. But do you feel like you've learned it or got better at it or was it a natural thing? Yeah. Yeah. What you said, I think makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of overlap with how maybe I think about it. I've studied, of course, just like decision making and, you know, uh, things you could do to make better decisions. But yeah, being exposed to ideas from others that may be different, observing people that are making good decisions and trying to at least consider and, and analyze that a little bit about like, why did they do this? And knowing yourself, I think is a big one too, right? Like a lot of it, a lot of this stuff is really about just getting out of our own way, like knowing what we tend to do that messes us up and then, you know, counteracting that and however you need to do that. I think that's huge. And then being open, like being truly open. To like learning we, and getting we, feedback? Yes, yes. To asking if I'm making a decision and I say, hey, smart five smart people I know, tell me what you think about this decision and they all tell you the same thing and then you say, oh, I'm going to do what I thought originally anyways. That doesn't help you. No, no. And Right. There, there are people, uh, and we see them sometimes, there are people that sort of ask for feedback or put things out on Twitter or whatever, uh, seemingly to kind of get feedback, but not really. People give them feedback. And if they don't like it, if it doesn't align with what they're thinking, they sort of shut it down. Right. You can't get good that way. You can't get better. You can't improve uh, in that way. Yeah, I like that. That's a good way to think about it. So I want to switch up topics and talk about sales as an introvert because you have had to do 
a lot of sales calls as you've moved into this upmarket position, especially on the API side. I'm assuming on the web website too. A question I get now and again is, I'm introverted and I don't really want to do sales, but I have to do sales. How do you do it? Or should I just not? Should I automate everything? You and I stand the same on this. You do you do what it takes. <laughs> if I if I want to build a multi-million dollar company, if I want to have an eight-figure exit, like I'm going to do what it takes whether I want to or not. And so I hate, I don't like sales. I'm not a good salesperson. I'm introverted as well. I don't like, I don't like talking to people I don't know, Ruben. I have a small circle of friends. And so how have you gotten over that? Yeah, there are just things that, that you do because you have to do to move things forward. And they tend to be easier if you know that they're not going to be permanent things. You're doing them to get to a place where you can bring on somebody who will do that, who truly enjoys doing that, right? So uh, sales for me, is, I can kind of enjoy it at times or parts of it, and I can see how people can be so into it that that's what they want to do for a living. Uh, I don't want to do that for a living. It doesn't give me energy. It takes, it's, you know, it's one of these things that takes energy away from me to where I need to recharge afterwards. Being that it's important for the things that I want to do with the business, I've just made it an effort to learn how to do it better. And I've put myself in situations to where I've had to practice it. So that's another part. And then I've just talked to other, same sort of process that I do for anything else that's new that I'm trying to understand and get, you know, and learn and get better, like practice taking in information and then talking to people who are doing it and learning from others, right? So learning from like Jordan Gall, who, who's, uh, you know, doing a lot of that. I've learned a lot from him. Matt Wensing, who's really, really good at it and is giving me some great tips and advice in, in the middle of uh, negotiations and all that. And uh, even hiring expertise. And, you know, we have a sales advisor that I that worked in our industry and did the, exactly the stuff that we want to do that I've hired to help us out and give us give us advice on this. Yeah, those are kind of the things that I've done to to help. So it's valuing the business, not even valuing, but prioritizing the business or the growth over your personal preference of what you want to do. And it's not what you want to do eight hours a day, 365 days a year. It's now and again, I have to do a sales call and I don't particularly want to do it, but I'm going to grind it for now, knowing that I'm going to hire this out eventually. But right now, it really needs a founder. And then taking information in and iterating, right? And getting getting good enough at it. I don't think you'd call yourself an amazing salesperson, would be my guess, but you're good enough. Exactly. And I think the, the even for things like this, to where it's not my favorite thing in the world to do, I think it really matters the energy that you come at these things with, right? It really does. If you're if you're going into into it sort of just like dreading it and thinking about how much it sucks and all this stuff, then it's going to be rough. It doesn't have to be that way, right? So I tend to think about things at a higher level in the way where I'm not thinking maybe so much about like the specific sales conversations and the tactical stuff. If I'm thinking about like the type of energy that I want to bring into into something so I'm not all pissed off and, you know, dreading it, I'm thinking about like it being a puzzle, right? Like all this stuff, is, are these are puzzles and like... It's about, I love figuring things out and it's about figuring this out and figuring these things out. So there was um, something I read recently, there was, uh, they were talking about like, I don't remember where it was, maybe it was a podcast, but uh, I like the way that they phrased it to where they're, they're saying, once you've made the decision, go into like, go all in and, you know, go into it with 
a positive sort of energy and attitude as much as you can, it makes no sense making this the decision and then sort of afterwards just like trying to fight it. Like if you've decided you've you've decided to do this thing. Then do it. Stop waffling. Yeah. Like go in. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And I like what you said right before that about essentially gamifying it. To you, it's like, huh, I don't like sales. But you know what I do like? I like my MRR going up. I like having a challenge that I really am not good at. And then I'm going to be good at in a week or a month or six months. And I've often thought about building businesses like that. I built several businesses pre-drip that I kind of didn't care about. You know, I had these little, you remember, little e-books about bonsai trees, right? Or I'm trying to think of the, I had duck, you know, the duck boat plans where you could build your own duck boat. And it's like, I didn't particularly, they were, they were quality things that I stood behind. Like I, I it wasn't just shilling crap, but I, I liked the product. I wasn't passionate about the product or the niche, but I gamified it in the sense of how high can I rank in Google for all the terms? How, how fast can this grow? And it wasn't, I mean, one of them did $500 a month it wasn't even MRR. It was just in sales of this $30 ebook, but it was still this fun challenge, you know, that I could work on. And I was learning. And if I screwed up with those, <laughs> screwed up and Google booted it out, it didn't matter, but it was still a fun challenge. And so, yeah, there were legitimately fun things about, about those. Yeah. So I want to mix it up and talk about hiring and firing. And really, I think the overarching thing is like building a team and building a functional team that gets it done. And that I never hear, I never hear an excuse from you of like, yeah, I, I don't know, there just aren't any good developers out there. Or my team's really dragging us. We're not making progress because of my team. You just never say that. Because I think you tend to be pretty picky about who you hire. I think you tend to fire pretty fast. And somehow you find, even, even during COVID, where we were at bootstrappers were at a disadvantage again because everyone was remote. And usually being remote is this big advantage. Even during COVID, like you still kept making forward progress. So like, what is your mental model around this? Like, why are you, again, I was telling you offline, you're probably in the top 10, 15% of like all the bootstrap founders I know in terms of hiring, firing, motivating, building a team, just get basically the overarching thing of your team. It's not just software. It's like the whole team. They just get it done. You have good people who are competent, who are doing customer success and support and all this stuff. And a lot of founders struggle with this. And it's, I, I don't know, it's like, Ruben, are you a natural at this? Or, or do you just have a framework or two that you think could help a listener who might have no idea what they're doing? So I didn't know that I was this picky. I, f- I felt like oh, I'm a little picky, um, but I didn't realize how maybe how much much more picky I was than uh, than the average founder hiring or company hiring until kind of recently where I was working with uh, Dynamite Jobs, I think, is that what they're called? I'm not sure. If- yeah, they're called Remote remote First Recruiting now. Yeah, it's Dan and Ian from Tropical MBA. We use them at, at TinySeed and MicroConf as well to help hire. Yeah, and they do a good job of like, you know, uh, putting out the job descriptions out there and taking calls and sort of like doing like initial interview and then sending you people that they think are are good and qualified and getting feedback if, you know, that needs adjustment and then sending you more people. You know, it was uh, something they said to where we were, we were at about person 15 or something like that, that they had sent. And um, Krista, who had been work, working with on that, I don't remember what I asked, but she said something like, well, actually, typically we send about three to four people before a hire is generally made. I was like, really? People are like, you know, after the the second, third, fourth person, they, they that's it. It's just, I feel like 
people are maybe a little bit too quick to hire. And they're, maybe some of it comes from, we really need somebody who need to fill that role. Uh, there's some pain there. And not being willing to just wait to find the right person. Um, I think that's part of it. Also, when you're hiring for a new position or something new, I tend to do the same thing like for sales. Sales advisors are very involved in helping hire this person, helping sort of like, I don't have the experience to, to have that gut feel yet for this being a really good person for this type of position in certain ways. I can, I can, you know, I understand if somebody's well organized and, you know, they have good attitude and all this stuff, but there's some gaps there. And I think it's important to fill those gaps with, with help and expertise when you, when you can. And then, you know, I, I do follow, like there's a, I like the book, who the A method for hiring, something like that, uh, to where it's very specific, process to where part of it is like beforehand, I think an important thing that maybe some people skip out on is identifying what makes a great hire and like going down the list of the things that you're really looking for. And then when you're interviewing people, scoring them, they call it a scorecard against each of these things. Like uh, if it's selling their, you know, their ability to, to follow up, their expertise with selling to the mid-market or enterprise or whatever. What people tend to do is they'll get somebody that they really like and they think is really good, but maybe they're not as good in the areas that they thought initially going into the whole process that they needed, right? And they end up hiring this person and then it doesn't work out because it's not like they just feel like, oh, this person's a really good. And you'll hear this sometimes if, if you come across a really good person, then just hire them. But when you're a small company, you do tend to have very specific needs and there is less room for that. That and then uh, one of the other things, even with hiring contractors, agencies and things like this, I tend to keep track of companies of, no, I should say of people that I think are really smart and good and doing interesting things. And I do that often, like I see them on Twitter or something like that. And so I have, I literally have a book, book, bookmark for like freelancers, writers, or like marketers. And this is just like random people that I think are really smart doing super interesting things that might be working at a company, might be working for an agency, might be freelancing, might be whatever, that I might in, at some point in the future want to work with maybe... Uh, sort of an external like agency or something that can help us with things or if they start something like that or a freelancer or hire them. Hey, this person, if they become available and we're looking for this type of position, they would probably be pretty good. I think it's helpful, I'll say, to to always do that even if you're not like hiring for that specific thing. Right. You're just paying attention because you know that you're going to grow. Yeah. It's interesting what you say about being picky because I used to be accused of that as well when I was a development manager at a credit card company. We'd hire these contingency recruiters that make an egregious percentage of the first year salary, 15% or something of a, you know, hundred and at the time, $120,000, $130,000 salary. And, but they only do it if you hire them. So there was all this pressure on us, but the, and the, the recruiters would get so mad and they'd be like, you know, what, what are you looking for? Can I see your resume? Do you have this stuff you're asking for? And I was like, no, you can't a, and my boss got super mad with the guys. Yeah. To see my resume. <laughs> but, uh, I said, no, I'm just not going to hire someone who's not That's a fit. Funny. Yeah. And, and the thing I think about, maybe I should write this out at some point, 
But when I think of, you know, you were talking about evaluating someone. Like, let's say I'm going to hire a designer, okay? If I simplify it, there's like three skills a designer needs. This is oversimplification, but they need the actual design skills, like the chops to do it. And whether I'm going to hire them full-time or just for a one-off job, like, are they a good designer? And you know how I can evaluate that? It's easy. Go look at the fucking designs. Like, are they... Yeah, just look at the work portfolio. So designers are actually, in my opinion easy to evaluate because I can look and say, I like that or I don't. I think they're skilled or they're not. That's the easy part. But there's two other factors that are hard to evaluate. The first one, I guess it's the second one of my three, is communication. Do they take feedback and iterate well? Do they communicate with you and say, oh, I'm going to be late or whatever? Are, Are you able to have a back and forth with them in a way that the two of you understand each other? So communication, and that's what I'm going after in an interview. I'm trying to suss out, I know what your skill is, I can see your design. So I'm trying to figure out, can you communicate? Let's talk about some complex topics and figure out if we're on the same page. And the third one, I'll just say, do they deliver? Meaning, can they hit deadlines? That one is the hardest of the three to figure out. That is. Because yeah. you can't figure that out by asking them a question. It has to be either references or maybe you ask, hey, when was the time you didn't hit a deadline? How did that play out? And listen to how they talk about it. And if they're like, oh man, it was like two years ago that I totally missed a deadline and here's what I did. Or if they're like, oh yeah, so like a couple weeks ago I did this. It's like, huh, so there's, there's a reason, right? But that's not, even that's not 100%. It's just, you're trying to evaluate. And if anything, if when I'm hiring designers, usually the thing that I miss is that they don't hit the deadlines and they're unreliable because that is the, I just, I just know there's uncertainty in that. And it's hard in an interview process until I work with them figuring that out. Similar, let's say we're hiring a customer support, email support rep for a SaaS company. There's, again, I think there's about three things. One is communication, for sure. Can they type the email or the live chat fast enough? Second is, do they understand, will they get the understanding of your customer and your product? I think that's the second thing. Like, can they grok that and get, get it all in their head? And the third one then, I think, is speed. You know, does it take them five minutes or 50 minutes to write this email? If I gave more thought to it, maybe I would pick different ones, but I, th- I think those are the three. Now, can I figure out communication? Probably. I could probably email them with them. I can talk with them during an interview. Can I figure out whether they're going to understand my customer and my product? That one's tough. I would do it on a sample project. Yeah. Yeah, we have uh, an application. We, we hired for that. We have an application for that to where I sign for the product, do this task, upload a document, all this stuff, and then fill out this this form that has these questions from real customers that we've asked to where they don't know the product that well, but they have to answer the, the questions and see if they can find the right answers or understand. A lot of it is about understanding what's coming at them. Yep. So all that to say is without those mental models or without any experience hiring, I think people, I've heard this phrase used of like resume and small talk. Where I get on an interview with anybody, with developer, designer, support person, and I'm looking at the resume saying, oh, they worked at Google. They worked at Facebook. They must be really good at that. No, don't do that. Or they, had, they were there seven years and they became a senior, blah, blah, blah. It's like, uh, so? I worked at a ton of companies with people, that ro- with dummies that rose to senior manager, right? right? Yeah. You can't, yeah. don't yeah. use that. Like that is, that is one of the least important things. I mean, I look at tenure, I look at some experience, blah, 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 but I'm trying to get into nitty gritty and ask some, I won't even say hard questions, but just questions that actually get to the root of what are the skills that they need to succeed at my company? Because guess what skill they don't need? The ability to work at Facebook for three years is not a skill you need to work for me. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. And 
We do the, uh, there is generally some sort of exercise to try and evaluate the quality of the work. And with depending on the position, you can kind of, on the design side, you can tell on the development side, even on that side, we do have like, you know, uh, people that go through like a four hour coding exercise and all that stuff. And that's been, uh, we've, we've improved that to, to where it's, it tells us pretty well, like where they are on the, on at least the code quality point of view. So that helps. And if you can work with them, of course, uh, on a smart project or something like that, that's the best Then you kind of know, but you, that, so that's not always going to be the case. But like I said, we, we hired both a developer recently that did that. And then on the customer success side, also for support, we're having a lot of people just have not being able to understand or understanding, but missing little details that matter and that result in a bad support experience because somebody's, you know, it's like, wait a minute, you're not, and we've all gotten this to where we send in the support and then they just like send in a, you know, a copy and pasted reply or link to a support article. And you're like, no, you're not really answering my question. Right. Yeah. That's a big part of it. And then in the communication part, it's just, that's partly why we have everyone write like in their application we have them write why they were interested in the position, like all the basic stuff, and then just get a feel for their writing and their communication. Generally, even in the exercise, there's there's a like feedback and improvement part. Can you change something? And this is about like seeing if they're open to kind of like criticism and if they're open to write like some pushback and all that. And it's not super strong, but you'd be surprised at how many people are just, you know, the way that they take it, it doesn't have to be super obvious. It can be kind of subtle to her like, ah, okay, there's, you know, there's something there. There's something there. Yep. And, and there are skills, like you're saying, that are easier to evaluate like communication or response time or understanding. And there are certain skills that in any role are just harder. Right. They're just harder, like hitting deadlines and this and that. It's like, I kind of can't figure that out in a deadline or in a, in a interview. I need to do a sample project. And I think having that dichotomy or whatever it is, that mental framework in your mind as you go into interviews, I think can be helpful. Cause like, I'm going to check the boxes for the ones that I can evaluate. And then the other one, I'm looking out. This is why people do trials, right? 30-day trial or a single project trial if it's project-based to try to suss out that other one or two. And if there's any wavering, you just cut bait. You know you know what's pretty good, uh, surprisingly good too, is uh, the question where I'm asking, like you ask everyone, like what are you, um, what are you not good at or what do you want to improve and all that stuff, right? And they they all like, oh, I'm too much of a perfectionist and blah, blah, blah. And then the one where you're asking like about specific jobs and who they work with. And if you, uh, if I ask who, who did you report to at that place at the job? Um, okay. So if I, so-and-so what they thought was something that like, if I asked them, what's something that they, they could improve in, what's an area that they could you know work on? What do you think that person will? Right. So your former boss. Yes. What would your former boss say that you could improve about yeah. yourself? And being specific at yeah. each one of the jobs, it actually works really, really, really well. Uh, sometimes you'll get pushback toward like, oh, I don't know what they would say. And then, you know, at that point, it's like uh, they don't want to say anything bad. But I say, sure, I get I get that. But like uh, somebody like Christian on my team, he's our lead dev. He's great. But he also wants to know how he can get better. So. I go out of my way to let him know because nobody's perfect how he can improve. So 
what would they say, like in your opinion, that would be? And usually, though, they, they know they've because they've those conversations have been had. So then when they say the thing, it's like, oh, uh, can you give me an example of that? Or, you know, and it'll usually come up like, yeah, you know, it came up because of and these types of things will give you clues into like their strengths and, and, you know, maybe the areas where they're not so good. Right. And another point you just made without even making it overtly is sometimes you have to ask a question two or three times. Sometimes you have to push a little bit. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to be a jerk, but I ask some hard questions very tactfully of people. I'm, I'm the guy on a tiny seat interviews. It's like, so I can see your, your churn is 12% per month. I'd imagine you want that to be quite a bit better because that's not good, you know, or what, you know, talk to me about why it's there. Talk to me about how you thought, right? So basically I could have said your churn is fucking catastrophic and your business is on fire. Why haven't you fixed it? That's one way to ask it. Or you can ask it the way I just did, right? So asking, so you don't have to phrase things like a jerk in order to ask hard questions. And that's actually Crucial Conversations is a book that you recommended to me years ago. And I learned, I learned a bit about, you know, phrasing and all that from there. Yeah, no, it's super, and coming at it, that's a good point, coming at it in multiple ways, because people will try to give you fluffy answers. It's like, oh, so for this project, uh, give me an example of this, what happened, what was something that where you ran into, a, what was a tough time at the company or whatever? It's like, oh, blah, 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 so-and-so, we had a problem with whatever, and they'll, it'll be very fluffy. It's like, oh, tell me about that. And then they'll kind of tell you, but it'll still be high level. It's like, yeah, I kind of want to understand what happened there. Tell me about your thinking, like what, what kicked it off and who, and you kind of sometimes have to push a little and just keep asking. Ruben Gomez, you are Earthling Works on Twitter. Everyone should rush over and follow him there. Thanks so much for taking time to come back on the show with me. Thanks. Uh, always great being on here. Thanks again to Ruben for joining me on the show. And thank you for coming back this and every week. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 696. 